Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Amos, chapter 9, verses 5 through 15. The Lord God Almighty, he touches the earth and it melts, and all who live in it mourn. The whole land rises like the Nile, then sinks like the river of Egypt. He builds his lofty palace in the heavens and sets its foundation on the earth. He calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out over the face of the land. The Lord is his name. Are not you Israelites the same to me as the Cushites, declares the Lord? Do not bring Israel up from Egypt. Excuse me, did I not bring Israel up from Egypt, the Philistines from Kaphtor, and the Aramaeans from Kerr? Surely the eyes of the sovereign Lord are on the sinful kingdom. I will destroy it from the face of the earth. Yet I will not totally destroy the descendants of Jacob, declares the Lord. For I will give the command, and I will shake the people of Israel among all the nations as grain is shaken in a sieve, and not a pebble will reach the ground. All the sinners among my people will die by the sword, all those who say disaster will not overtake or meet us. Israel's Restoration In that day, I will restore David's fallen shelter. I will repair its broken walls and restore its ruins and will rebuild it as it used to be so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord who will do these things. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills, and I will bring my people, Israel, back from exile. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. Thank you, Beth. And thank you, Luciana. I don't, um, I don't know about y'all. I think a lot of times Luciana preaches to me better than I preach to me. So uh, I am grateful for her ministry, not just teaching children, but teaching all of us. Speaking of uh, children, just a, a few notes. Uh, one, we, it's just been weird the past year. Uh, we haven't been able to do a lot of the children's stuff that we're used to doing. And um, we're adjusting. We're doing the best we can. We're hoping to restart. We're planning to restart junior church in the fall, but there's a real blessing about having children with us in the service, even for the whole service. Yes, they make some noise. They wiggle. They squirm. One of them is mine. Um, it's beautiful. Children are not a nuisance. They're a joy, and we love having them with us, even in the squirms and the squawks and, and whatever. So parents, Just remember, your kids are always twice as loud to you as they are to anybody else, and my kid is twice as loud as me as she is to you, so we're all in this together. Um, Also, uh, because children aren't usually in with us uh, for the Lord's Supper, which we'll celebrate in just a moment, um, a few parents have reached out to me just asking, what do I do with my kids? Is it okay for them? Uh, Our conviction as a church is that the Lord's Supper is for anybody who loves and trusts in Jesus Christ. Uh, However they put it, uh, don't confuse childlike faith for no faith. 
but it is not our conviction that you have to be baptized in order to take the Lord's Supper. So if you have a question, parents, and you're just not sure, is this okay for my kid or not? Uh, one, we leave that judgment call up to parents because we think you know your kids better than we do. If you think this is appropriate for them, if you think your kid loves Jesus and has some understanding, even just a shred, that Jesus loves me and died for my sins, then it would be appropriate for your kid to join us. If you're not sure, if you want to play it safe, or you're pretty sure they don't know that yet, you can tell them, you know what, let's just wait until you're a little bit older, um, and that's fine as well. All right, will you join me in prayer as we uh, open the word of the Lord? Oh Lord God, help us to know your ways. Would you teach us your paths? Lead us in your truth and teach us, for you are the God of our salvation. For you we wait. For you we wait. My soul waits upon the Lord all day long. We ask these things through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Today we're finishing our four-week sermon series in the Old Testament prophet Amos. I was telling some friends a couple weeks ago, I'm really starting to regret choosing Amos because it's been such a depressing month. Um, and I don't know if you've felt that. Like, it's, it's heavy, and there's no getting around that. Uh, but the more we feel the heaviness uh, of parts of Scripture, the more we feel the lightness and the joy of the light and joyful parts of Scripture. And today we're really going to turn that corner. That's our goal. Because Amos is all about both the justice and the mercy of God. And somehow we think justice and mercy are opposites, but God shows us how they coexist, and in fact, justice is a form of mercy. We saw the first week, just a quick recap, that God's justice is his mercy. If a, if a parent snatches their child violently from running into a highway, the child might perceive that as mean-spirited or cruel, but the parent knows, no, that's an act of mercy. It's for your good. Sometimes when God speaks harshly to his people, it's not because he's cruel or mean-spirited. It's because we haven't listened. And the most merciful thing he can do sometimes is to call our attention sharply so that we'll listen to him and follow him. Second week, we saw how deeply God cares for the poor and the powerless. And one of the things that grieves God's heart the most is when his people don't share that same concern. Last week, we saw that God's judgment is not cruelty or vindictiveness. We looked at it through a different lens. Uh, as C.S. Lewis put it, uh, at the end of the day, there are only two kinds of people. There are people who say to God, thy will be done, and there are people to whom God will say, thy will be done. In other words, when we think about justice or even judgment, it's not so much God enacting a cruel punishment. It's him giving us what we've asked for in the first place. When we walk from him, eventually he says, okay, have it your way. Today we're going to do as Amos does, and we're going to finish, but on a very high note of mercy. And it's important to remember through this series uh, that, that the church is the new Israel. In Romans 2, Paul says, Israel is not defined by genetics. It's not defined by birthline, by being born into a Jewish family. He says, you are, we are Jews inwardly, not outwardly. Which means that when Amos is writing to Israel, we can draw a lot of comparisons to what God might say to the church, to us today. And that's why we've been looking at Amos this summer. Throughout most of Amos, here's where we've been. God has called out two related problems, the hypocrisy and the complacency of his people. 
First, he calls out their hypocrisy. He says, I called you to personal righteousness. And you're doing these things that look good and that look righteous, but it's just a thin veneer. Your heart is not in it. It's like a thin veneer over a cheap, uh, a cheap imitation. It looks great on the outside, especially from a distance. But there's just a cheap counterfeit product on the inside. Here's how he puts it. This is from Amos 5. God says, I hate, I despise your religious feasts. I can't stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring me choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. Now that sounds very harsh, but what he's getting at and what he's gotten at right before that is saying, you do all the right things, but your heart's not in it. You're doing it either because somebody else expects you to or to earn somebody else's approval. Whatever it is that you're doing, the right thing done with the wrong heart is the wrong thing. That's the hypocrisy side. Then God also addresses the complacency of his people. He says, I've called you, this is what we looked at the second week, to care for the poor and the powerless and the weak, for widows. And very specifically throughout the Old Testament, we see God calls his people to care for widows, orphans, immigrants, and the poor, people in poverty. Four main categories. Now, I didn't cover Amos 6 in this series. We kind of skipped over it. But let me just read you what God says to his people in Amos 6. This is verses 4 through 7. He says, You lie on beds inlaid with ivory and lounge on your couches. You dine on choice lambs and on fattened calves. You strum away on your harps like David and improvise on your musical instruments. This is my favorite image. You drink wine by the bowlful. You imagine like a, a bowl of wine. Like you can't drink, you know how you drink wine out of a bowl? Like half of it just dribbles out the sides and on. it's just luxurious excess indulgence. It's a good image, isn't it? You drink wine by the bowlful and use the finest lotions, but you do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, you will be among the first to go into exile. Your feasting and lounging will end. He says, you have all of these luxuries for yourselves, and yet you neglect the very people I've called you to serve. We can tie this together with chapter 2 when God says, you trample on the heads of the poor as upon, on, as upon the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. He says basically the same thing in chapter 5. You trample on the poor and force him to give you grain. See, God cares deeply, deeply for the weak and dispossessed of this world. And when we neglect God's call, not just to serve them when it's convenient, but to seek out opportunities for justice, to care for those. God says we're neglecting him. If you don't believe me, if you think that's a stretch, consider what Jesus says in Matthew 25. He says, whatever you do for the least of these, you do for me. It's a different word, version of saying what, uh, what it says in Spider-Man. Remember the movie Spider-Man, the famous line from, with great power comes great you know, responsibility, of course. It's Spider-Man theology. But Stan Lee just got it. I don't know, was it Stan Lee? Anyway, uh, whoever wrote that got it from basically Jesus, 
Remember Luke 12? For everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one to whom much has been entrusted, much more will be asked. In other words, what God, what is he saying? He's saying, you're my people. I've blessed you, but I didn't mean for you to just hoard it for yourselves, to try to preserve or protect yourselves, to just worry about your own security. I blessed you so that you could bless the world. At the time Amos is writing, the Israelites are, they're, they're looking more like Claudius, from, if you read Hamlet, Claudius from Hamlet. He's the, the evil king who just consolidates power and stuff for himself instead of being a good king and looking out for the welfare of his subjects. If you haven't read Hamlet, have you seen The Lion King? It's basically Hamlet. It's Scar. Scar is the exact same. Remember the difference between the reign of Mufasa and the reign of Scar? So we've had Spider-Man theology and Lion King theology today. Now let me pause, by the way, here and, and just address one concern. You, you might be a little bit worried at this point. In fact, I hope you're a little bit worried at this point, and I'll explain myself. You might be wondering, wait a minute, am, am I one of these hypocrites that God is talking about? Am I complacent in the way God is describing? Here's why I hope you're a little bit worried about that. If you're a little bit worried, that's the first good step towards seeking God. It means you're being honest and saying, God, I, I, I don't know, search my heart. I want to be more like you. And if that means rooting out the bad stuff, then do it. Amos is written to jolt God's people to attention. On the flip side, if you're not worried, that would never be me. That's a problem. Because the person who says, that's not, that could never be me, that'll never happen to me, they're the ones with the biggest blind spots. It's a great irony and it's tragic, but it's true that very often the people who most need to hear these truths are the ones who are least likely to listen to them. Throughout Amos, so far, God has shown us his heart. He's described why he's so grieved. He's pleaded from his, for his people to come back. Remember in verse 4, he says, return to me, return to me five times in chapter 4. In chapter 5, seek me and live, he says, three times. And it's judgment and justice and depression until halfway, there's been hints of mercy, don't get me wrong, but halfway through chapter 9, the last chapter, we change course. You heard it as Beth read. Because as Israel has stubbornly walked away from God, God has stubbornly pursued his people. As Israel stubbornly rejects God, God stubbornly shows grace and grace and grace. In fact, what we find is you, you we, or none of us can out-stubborn God. And that's good news. He said it a few times, but he gets really explicit starting in verse 11. Listen to the transition between chapter 9, verses 10 and 11. It's in your program, or if you have your Bible, you can follow along. This is verse 10. All the sinners among my people will die by the sword. All those who say disaster will not overtake or meet us. That's the depression. But listen to the turn. Now verse 11. In that day, I will restore... Israel's fallen tent. I will repair its broken places. I will restore its ruins and build it as it used to be so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord who will do these things. As stubbornly rebellious as God's people have been, so much more stubbornly merciful will God be. 
There will be a judgment. Don't, don't get it wrong. Amos is not saying there won't. We know historically God allowed the nation of Israel to fall in 722 B.C. And then Judah, 150 years later in 586 B.C. Remember, when we talk about judgment, it's basically God saying, uh, we called it Burger King theology last week, have it your way. Okay, if you're going to walk, at some point he will let us walk. But he doesn't say, I'll call everything off. He says in that day, verse 11, I will restore. I will rebuild. You may have shattered that beautiful window into a thousand pieces, God says, but you cannot damage even yourselves beyond what my artistry will will repair. I'll take those shards of glass and pick them up from the floor and I'll turn them into a beautiful stained glass window. So in Amos 9, let's just look quickly um, at uh, kind of three different lenses at the restoration that God promises. I want to think about what God promises to restore, why he promises to restore, and finally, how he promises to restore. What, why, and how. First, let's look at what exactly is the restoration God is promising. Now, there's a great commentator. He was, he's been really helpful to me as I've been learning about Amos. And he points out, his name is Billy Smith, God promises to restore or to recreate at least three things. Israel's identity, which has been shattered, their prosperity, which has been stripped from them, and their security, which, has been robbed, which they've been robbed of. And those of you who've been reading Amos, and you know we've, we've been asking you to read through Amos once a week with us as we're in this sermon series, you may notice that all those things are things the Israelites have been trying to get on their own, apart from God. They've been looking for identity and status apart from God. They've been looking for prosperity on their own, trying to build up their own wealth apart from God. They've been looking to establish their security apart from God. But God says in verse 11, I'll restore David's fallen tent. And every commentator points out that that by saying uh, David's tent is basically a way of saying their place in the world, their status, it's their rule, their social position. In other words, God says, even though you've looked for your identity apart from me, I will track you down and I will give it back, even though you've, it's been stripped from you. He says, I'll restore your prosperity. Look at verse 13. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills. In other words, remember from Amos 6, you drink wine by the bowlful. You think that's excessive? I will make wine flow from the mountains and drip from the hills. You won't be able to walk without stepping in a puddle of wine. You think you know excess? You cannot outdo me. It's like um, if you've read A Tale of Two Cities. I read A Tale of Two Cities uh, over the past year. You know that scene at the beginning when the wine cart tips over and all the barrels of of wine burst? This is in in, uh, revolutionary era France and Paris, and the streets of Paris are flooded with like, thousands of gallons of wine and everybody comes out and it's a festival and it's a party because free wine and God's saying like it's like that but even more you have no idea the prosperity that I want to give to you if you'll just follow me if you'll just follow me 
Now, we don't mean this. Let me just make a quick note. There's a phrase that's called prosperity gospel. That's not what we're talking about. And God is not literally talking about physical material possessions all the time. But what he is saying, he's using wine as a metaphor for a lot of things, and it it ties into Revelation at the end of the New Testament as well. What he's saying is, if you follow me, you will never lack for anything you need, and in fact, I'll give you more than you can handle. Sometimes material, sometimes not. But he says, if you have me, you have enough. Lastly, he promises to restore their security. He says, you'll never again be uprooted. You will never again be uprooted. Everything they want, everything they're trying to get on their own, God says, I'll take care of it for you. What are you, I would ask, turn the lens inward. What are you trying to accomplish for yourself? What do you lose sleep over preserving at night? What are you afraid of losing so much that you lose sleep over it at night? What are you trying to build so much that it's the first thing you think about in the morning? God says he can, he can do it better. I think there's actually a fourth and a fifth restoration. I won't get deeply into them, but one is his people's calling. This is worth noting. Uh, did you notice in verse 12, Amos says, God says through Amos, I'll do this so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name. We've seen Edom once before, if you remember, way back in Amos 1, when God issues a judgment on all of Israel's enemies. And now he's telling Israel, you will possess Edom. Now he's not talking about like a colonial conquest, but he's saying your enemies will become one of you. In other words, I'm not just restoring you, God says, I'm restoring the world. Even the people you least think I can get to, I can get to. I will restore Edom and all the nations that bear my name. You know when you bear somebody else's name? There are two times that I can think of that you take on somebody else's name. Traditionally, not always, but traditionally when people get married, a wife takes on her husband's name. She becomes identified with him. And when parents adopt children, the children take on their parents' name. They're now in the family. In other words, what God is saying is, is all the nations will bear my name, even your enemies. Even your enemies. And if you're still skeptical, consider this, that in the New Testament, in the New Testament in Acts 15, there's a great controversy. Remember, Jesus was Jewish. Jesus wasn't white. He was a, he was a Middle Eastern Jew. And so the very first Christians were Jews. And they happened to believe that Jesus was the promised Messiah. And there was a great controversy early on. Can we accept non-Jews into the, into the church? In Acts 15, James, the brother of Jesus, stands up and says, we have to. You know what he quotes as his source, as his evidence? Amos 9. <laughs> Can you believe it? Amos 9. He says, look, God promised to do it in 760 B.C., that all the nations would bear his name. And that means not just Jews, but Gentiles too. He will recreate Israel's purpose to be a blessing to the world, to the nations. And lastly, there's a, there's a fifth kind of restoration that I see, and there's probably more, um, that of work. 
I'll just say this and move on because we don't have time to really get into it. In Genesis 3, there's a curse, and the curse isn't work itself. God created work, and work was good. But the curse in Genesis 3 on work is that uh, it, it became really hard. After the fall, after Adam and Eve sinned, the trouble with work was God said, by the sweat of your brow, you will toil and labor and battle against thistles and thorns. Work that was supposed to be flourishing and life-giving will become drudgery and really, really hard. So like when you're just sick of work and having a terrible day at work, it's because God promised it in Genesis 3. But did you notice in Amos 9 verses 13 through 15 what he describes? I'm not going to read the whole thing. He describes flourishing work. He describes all their work just succeeding beyond their wildest dreams. That's part of the image of vineyards flowing wine down the mountains. What is God doing? He is comprehensively recreating everything. Why? Why? If you really think about it, if you really look at it, like it doesn't make a lot of sense. We talked about this last week, but let's address it again. He doesn't say, I will recreate the cosmos after you have returned to me. He doesn't say, shape up, and then I might consider some of your requests. He doesn't say, get your act together first, and then I will restore you. No, he just says, I will restore you. I will restore you. And we get a really good hint at the very, very last line of Amos, Amos 9.15. It ends this way, I'll do all these things, says the Lord your God. Now, if you have your program, and I know the, the printing is off when it's really hot, our printer gets wonky and we printed when it was really hot on Wednesday. But look at the last line of the text here. If you have your Bible, look at the last line of Amos 9.15. Says the Lord your God. Looks pretty plain, right? Notice how the word Lord is in all caps. In English translations of the Bible, typically when you see the word Lord in all caps, it's a translation of God's personal name. You've probably heard it, Yahweh. Now, we don't really understand this because we're English speakers and we don't speak Hebrew. When we hear the phrase, the Lord, and especially when we see Lord in all caps, we think that means I need to sit up a little straighter and I need to not speak unless I'm spoken to, and I need to be on my absolute best behavior. In fact, it's the exact opposite. The Lord is a stand-in in the Hebrew text for Yahweh, which is God's personal name, as in God wants to be on a first-name basis with his people. Imagine you meet the president of our country, and he says, call me Joe. It's kind of like that, but God when you see the Lord in all caps, it intim- it, it's about intimacy, not formality. If you find that a little hard, consider this. The first time we see God introducing himself by his name, Yahweh, is in, Genesis, or in Exodus 3, right before he sets his people free from slavery in Egypt. To a Jew, the name Yahweh is, is inextricable from God's mercy. Like they hear Yahweh and they think mercy, 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 mercy. What does that have to do with Amos? Amos ends with the phrase, the Lord, all caps. Actually, it's the Lord, your God, which is even more personal. But that word, the Lord, all caps, occurs, believe, get this, 72 times in Amos. It was 146 verses 
in Amos. I can't why the software account for me, but I found out. Which means that if the Lord were to occur one more time in Amos, exactly half of all the verses in the whole book would have this word, the Lord, the merciful one. Every other verse has a mention of God's mercy just by virtue of his name. The word occurs so often, it occurs two and a half percent of all the words in Amos are Yahweh, are the Lord. Throughout the whole thing, he's trying to get to his people. I love you. I'm committed to you no matter what, even through the justice and the judgment. The commentator again, Billy Smith, he wrote this. He says, God is the one who restores, builds, plants, and blesses. It will be by his mercy. It will not be by political coup. It will not be by social revolution or military, excuse me, or by military maneuvers that God's people regain their ascendancy. It will be by the coming of the Lord who will heal his people in their land. Why does God do this? Why does God promise to recreate everything his people have broken? For one reason only. Because it is God's character always to have mercy. It's not because you acted good enough. It's not because we got our, our stuff in order. It's not because we repented it's not because we prayed the right prayer. It's not because we went to the Bible study or went to church. It's not because of any of it. It's just because he's merciful. He just is. In just a moment, we're going to celebrate the Lord's table, the Lord's supper, where our eyes get fixed firmly on the cross. What is the cross? If not, God saying, I will be merciful to you no matter what. Jesus didn't come for you after you shaped up. He came for you just in pure mercy, even while we were running. Romans 5 says, this is how we know what love is, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There's nothing God's people, there's nothing the Israelites then or we today can do to merit God's mercy. There's nothing we can do to manipulate ourselves into God's mercy. We can't engineer God. We can't control him. We can't influence him. He just has mercy. Like what better news is that? Is there than that? When God speaks to his people in Amos, he's really speaking to us today. He's saying, you have gone your own way instead of seeking me. And there will be justice. He allows the consequences for our sin to occur. Because remember, sin, sin is basically telling God, I'm just fine on my own without you. Thank you very much. And God says, there will be justice. Okay. God's justice is just say, him saying, okay, you're on your own. And friends, that, like, that's probably the best definition you can give of hell. Of God saying, okay, you're on your own. Have it your way. 
What did Jesus say on the cross? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Jesus felt the full justice of God. God says there will be justice, and believe me, there was. And there will be mercy. First in this, that Jesus experienced the justice of God in our place. And secondly, that as Jesus experienced the justice of God, he didn't remain dead. He didn't remain under condemnation. But Jesus was raised to new life, and God is making everything new. God is recreating a broken world. Our faith is not just about God forgives your sins. Don't get me wrong, it is about that. But it's so much more. God is restoring the world and he invites you and he invites me to be a part of that. When we forgive people who don't deserve our forgiveness, when we feed people who are hungry, when we're merciful to people, when we listen to people patiently even though they annoy us, when we, whatever it is, we are somehow participating in God's mission to restore a broken world. What a privilege. There will be justice, yes, and there will be mercy. There has been justice and there has been mercy. You see, friends, in Amos, in Amos, nine depressing books in the Old Testament, nine depressing chapters in the Old Testament, what do we see? We see the gospel of Jesus. The good news that God was unwilling to let us go all the way our own way. The good news that God is willing to pay any cost to win us back. The good news that God is committed no matter what to rebuilding our broken world and an incredible invitation to join him in that work. That's our call as a church. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we want to feel your mercy. We know very often we individually and corporately tend to go our own way. But would you have mercy on us? Don't let us stray too far, but chase us down, hunt us down. As we see that you did with your people Israel almost 3,000 years ago, would you do the same with us today? And through this table, remind us that you will never stop chasing your people. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen.